Welcome back to part two of our epic Wired episode where we're talking about their debut album, 1977's Pink Flag. We're joined by Ferruccio from the band Cut, lovely Italian gentleman who has been a font of knowledge so far and I am certain he will continue to be for the rest of the episode. So enjoy. So in 87, a record came out called the ideal copy yeah uh i i really rate this album i mean i think it's it's really good i mean it's worth saying that just before that they had actually reformed in 85 but they'd refused to play any old stuff at this point so they'd gone on tour with a band called the x line tamers yeah um and the x line yeah (laughs) yeah so they would play the old stuff and then wire would come on and only play the new (laughs) stuff yeah but um, the record label made them do an interview in New York to tell them that to, to tell people that they weren't going to be playing any new stuff, any old stuff <laughs> at all. And apparently, they would then go on stage with this band and play old songs with them sometimes as well. That's it. That's at the cool. gigs, which is quite cool. Nostalgia, yeah. 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 <laughs> but the ideal copy of the nineteen eighty seven album, I think, it's got some really good stuff in it as well. I was something I was going to say about it. It's like the producers Gareth Jones who'd worked uh, on Depeche Mode records before this, and mm-hmm. I just kind of wondered how much of an input he might have had in the sonics of this because it does sound a lot like Depeche Mode. Like, yeah, I agree. So. There's a there's there's a phenomenon that I think starts to to become apparent, and I think it holds up throughout. So, point of collapse, the first track in this really kicks off that reunion with a really different sound. much more delicate it's got an 80s kind of chorus heavy guitar tone the whole thing sounds a bit more sophisticated and slick as you say it's got it's, the production just sounds that that step up um ahead second track in it it's this very 80s sort of gated reverb thing Um, it's a strong tune, and you can tell that now the the electronics are incorporated really confidently. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the obviously the second two records, the electronics were in there largely. They were brought in by the producer, and they were they were fun, but they didn't seem seamless. Whereas now it seems like in a kind of an, an, an integral part of the band. Um, I hate the third track on this, uh, Madman's Honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that line, he's just a man as mad as a hatter. <laughs> Absolutely hate that fucking accent. They do stuff um, like that. They do go into those little sort of segues quite a lot. That there are a lot of yeah, songs across the catalogue that are just pure brain damage. But <laughs> yeah, totally. This this is where they start to sound very much like eighties pop and new wave, and it's it's quite different. Now another track that I want to pull out just for props uh, because I think it's a really really innovative piece of work is the track "Feed Me," which was fourth in this. A great song. Um, yeah. Great song. Um, I think there's a lot of like Nick Cave type stuff going on in there, like between Birthday Party and his his, his own early project. Ooh, 
Um, it's great production in that song. I think it's brilliant writing. It's really innovative. Um, it's very ominous. These huge guitar strikes, like 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 an like an electronic axe. So axe blows throughout the song. Um, you can hear the saliva cracking on his vocal. Like the vocal's so well recorded. There's a lot of detail in there. You can hear the whispers. And as far as an experiment uh, goes, I think it's very successful. And as far as combining the things they've been doing with their solo projects into the context of, of Wire, I think it's also really successful. Probably the most successful point on that record. Um, and before I jump into the next record, which I think, Ferro, you probably have a fair bit to say about what I want to try and identify as a start of a phenomenon here, right? So for me, uh, the first three, the triumvirate, Wire were ahead of the curve. I think hopefully we established that to some to some, some extent when we talked about their peers and how they're at least one to two years ahead mm-hmm. of all these other kind of classic punk and, and uh, you know, post-punk records that were coming out. Yeah. They were all ahead of the curve for years. They were setting the standards for years. They were They were putting ideas in other musicians' heads for years. What this represents to me, I think, is Wire coming into the present. I don't think they sound like old hat. I don't think they sound out of date. No. But they sound of that time. And I think they're decent at it. I don't think they were by any standards the best at it of that no. era. Um, but they're, they're keeping up now. So if you imagine it like a race, like they, they got off to a flying start miles ahead of the pack. Now the pack sort of seems like it's caught up a little bit. And they're still... Yeah. They're still they're still holding their own a lot of time, but they're certainly not setting the standards anymore, I don't think. And you start to notice them aping other people as much as other people used to ape them. And what I feel happens is they then slowly lag behind right up until the 90s and then through into the 2000s, where they now sound like an old band trying to bring out new stuff. And it always, whilst there are still moments of triumph, I think they always sound like they're behind now. They always sound anachronistic. They always sound just a little bit out of date. Um, and even if they mess about with the production techniques and sometimes to good effect, it does always sound like an old band occasionally getting a good result, it's, which is quite different from the wire I imagine from that early triumvirate that we spoke about a bell as a cup for me is the, the big turning point there. Yeah I mean obviously yeah, I mean it's they're accomplished records they're accomplished new wave pop rock records you know, very well played very well, very good songs most of the time, you know uh, obviously you can say they can argue that they peaked too early <laughs> they did this mm-hmm. three you know incredible albums and but anyway with their I think for instance with a project like Drill Snake Drill mm-hmm. in 1986 or 85 I may be wrong 85 yeah 85 yeah well that was an attempt to bring some of that experimentalism, the experimental attitude of the, some of their side projects that you mentioned uh, into uh, into Wire, into the big body of work of Wire, you know. But it was soon abandoned, if you think about it, because, you know, then they, they moved to The Ideal Copy, which is a great album, in my, in my opinion. I agree with you, and um, and then um, a cup, uh, blah blah blah, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah, you know, those, a cup, a bell is a cup. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I had that record since like twenty, no, 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 forty years now, and I, <laughs> I will never learn it. All right, but anyway, what I want to say is that basically, you're right. Yeah, they, they kind of, they kind of became one of the, the one of the bands, you know. Sometimes they started sounding like the people they had inspired. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, uh, Wire had a big um, 
influence on not only on, on, on avant-garde stuff but also on the new psychedelic movement of the 80s mm-hmm. if you think about people uh, bands like uh, uh, the Soft Boys for instance uh, or uh, uh, Julian Cope's band uh, Teardrop Explodes yeah Teardrop Explodes <laughs> All those bands, you know, neo Eco the Bunnymen, all those like neo psychedelic bands that were that became, you know, very very successful sometimes, and also on, on on the solo careers of of people like Julian Cope or Robin Hitchcock from the Soft Boys, so they they call them the Punk Floyd. <laughs> 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 I think um, Phil, uh, go back to Phil Eaglesham, Phil had mentioned uh, the work that they did with, who's the founder of the the? Ah, the the, of course, yeah, Matt, Matt Johnson, yeah. Yeah, 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 some of that had, was quite successful as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, you know, in those records, I mean, those late 80s records, they, they kind of sounded a bit like these people, so this neo-psych um, side of their influences, you know, that had developed throughout the 80s. But still, you know, they're decent albums, and sometimes they try to come back to that experimental attitude or bring it back, bring it back into their sound. But I have to say, maybe you were going to mention this later. To me, the Sand album from 2003 is one of the best records they've ever done. Yeah. It's a beast of an album, in my opinion. And I've seen them live for the first time around that time, and it was one of the loudest, most sonically challenging shows that I've ever seen in my life. And um, it was incredible. Like live, those songs were like a wall of of distorted sound coming at you. It was brilliant. And um, and those EPs, they they've done two EPs and then the album, which is basically a collection of the two EPs plus three or four uh, other songs. That is brilliant. That is almost. I mean, I wouldn't say at the same level as you know those famous three albums early three albums but you know I think it's it's a great return to form as they say <laughs> with this horrible expression but you know I think it's a, it's uh, that album is at least if you wanna uh, if you wanna get into Wire I think you should get the first three albums and then definitely Send because it's a great album and, yeah uh, I, I, I do agree I think they found their mojo a bit on Send um, I think it goes back to that phenomenon you're talking about though Chris I, I guess we may probably come to that later on but I that thing of you are influenced by those that you have influenced at this point and it becomes uh, Ouroboros, Ouroboros but I mean that period between Ideal Copy and Send they become really poppy like really yeah. sort of new wavy there's tons of reverb they start to do the, the baritone vocals a lot more like A Bell is a Cup whilst it's a very tight album like it feels like very sort of well considered it, it's it's a bit anemic to me and it feels it, it empty it feels like there's something missing fundamentally yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't it doesn't emotionally resonate with me a lot I mean The Finest Drops um, has some great percussion on it
um, I think it's full of hooks uh, in the electronics again really seamlessly in there but I think that snotty punk thing is like a distant memory at this point there's there's not a lot of attitude um, it's a boy tones, really yeah. dark, fuzzy bass in it. I like that. Um, the Boiling Boy, I think, is probably best moment of that kind yeah. of era. also got into this habit now of doing these big much longer mid-album songs these are these they, they drop a song around about the number six mark that's you know five six seven minutes long that's kind of become a feature of their the way they arrange their records uh, the, t- the last track in that um, a public place is this very arty sort of dissonant grimy sort of ending thing I think it's okay. And then they, they did this weird thing with the album after that in is it eighty nine IBT yeah. What does that what does that stand for again? In the beginning and two back again. Yeah, exactly. Right. Basically they played live in the States, England and Portugal and then they deconstructed and reconstructed songs from recordings of the shows. Um again, finest drops in that is a decent Uh, it's a bit slicker but slightly more laboured mm-hmm. than the version on the previous album I think if, from a production point of view it's an interesting album and it's very very 80s the thing is it's coming at the tail end of the 80s so it's not by any means cutting edge yeah. um, and by the time they got to Manscaped the record that I, that I found them at which confused me a lot because they weren't the urgent energised punk band that I expected when I picked up that tape it, it feels really dated to me already by that, that stage Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's probably their worst album. Yeah, yeah, Stampede, the second track in that, the tones are a little bit ridiculous on it. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're a parody of themselves. just like plodding sort of 80s new wave and I think it's really interesting to think that Manscaped was two years after Surfer Rosa you know what I mean it's the same year as Violator by Depeche Mode it just shows you how out of date they are suddenly going from this band that was ahead of the pack they're now really struggling and there's this emerging new generation of really interesting new indie music and they're just not keeping up I mean I think think there's some some interesting ideas um, but they sound like a band that want to grow they don't want to be complacent but I think they're really they're lacking a bit of self-awareness at this stage Um, now the drill 
kind of concept record that followed, um, which is basically like eight versions of one song. They're all yeah. like remixes or reconstructed versions of the same tune. The fourth one on it, like a Berlin drill, like the brackets mm. one. Um, I think it's a standout one. It's really got a really nice industrial kind of post-punk thing going on. Um, a cool bass loop in it and this good use of the contrapuntal guitar with the bass. It's an okay idea. It's not massively re-listenable. And then considering that that's there and you've already got Nine Inch Nails and Ministry kicking about in a big way, I don't think it's really standing up to the, the new industrial stuff that's coming out. The album that no. followed that was the the drummer had left. He was a little bit dissatisfied, I think, at the lack of... Drums. Actual <laughs> drums. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the overuse of drum machines. So Go To Bed's gone, or Grey is gone. And uh, they, they shortened the name to Wire, D-W-I-R. Yeah. Um, the album's called The First Letter. Um, the cover art in that, by the way, was done by my friend Russell Haswell, which I didn't actually know. <laughs> so I've been drinking with this guy, and I didn't know he'd done the art for this album oh, until right. I was reading the liner notes. <laughs> um, a, a much more industrial vibe. But this was a that this album was released a week after Nevermind, okay, and it just sort of again, and it, it's two years after Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails, and you're like, this is this is way way behind the pace, guys. You really, and it seems like at this point they realised that finally, and they dropped off the map. That was why they were gone. They went back to the side projects, and then, as you say, Ferro came back in two thousand and three with Wire version three point and this album Send, which I do agree. It seems like they really got their breath and they had this one big push that came back with this record. The sounds on it are really interesting. Production's really interesting. Mm. Sorry, Mark, don't be insulted, but they've done a bit of the thing that Moby did with Animal Rights, which is this digital punk thing, plugging straight into the desk. It's sort of warm, but but digitised in the sound. It's very full sounding because of that, because of the quality of guitar when you do it, when you record it in that manner. Um, the first track in that, and the art of stopping, is this buoyant, weird, cool oh, sort of change of aesthetic. Too. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, really good. Uh, Mr. Marx's table just shows that production-wise they're taking no prisoners. It's this really fuzzy digital punk feel, as I say. I mean, I think there are a lot of really brave production decisions on this this record, and I can totally believe that live it had oh, to be played loud. Amazing. It's a very confrontational album. I think. It was amazing. It was super loud. So on the par with the first time I've seen the Melvins, I guess, in terms of loudness. 
and Swans. Yeah, I think the only bands and my bloody Valentine <laughs> when I saw them in London. Yeah, this good company though. Good four, company. Four or yeah. five bands I've seen, uh, yeah, I've seen at that level of of loud. You know, that was incredible. I remember, and and to think that like the guys on stage like. Gilbert is born in 1946, like he's two <laughs> years younger than my dad. He could have been in the Beatles, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Not really. He's like two years, I think it's two or three years younger than George Harrison. Mm-hmm. And wow. these guys in the in the new millennium, they were making sounds that were like extreme to younger years. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I always admired them for that. Even the, the drill project is a bit wacky in a way. Uh, you know, the fact that they did this song on this Snake Drill EP in 1985, they did the whole album of versions of the same song. And then yeah. they have this festival called Drill Festival. Yeah. Uh, and then they invite people to play like the, 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 the jam with the swans I think once in a festival on that song they have this, this song that they take with them it shows that they're always thinking about what they're doing it's always there's always this labor this intellectual labor on their own catalogue and what they're doing and where they are at the moment probably they spoke, lo- a, they, they spoke a wee bit about ageism actually because they were saying that they're played on festival shows with bands that don't expect that you know they expect these old codgers to go up and sort of bang out this kind of stuffy music played with no energy and instead especially at this point they were playing this really full on saturated oh it was unbelievable art rock yeah Yeah. thrashy you know Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think they played. When I saw them the first time, it was <clears throat> in this place called Link Bologna. I think they have not played one single song from the first three albums. It was all new material, <laughs> and I wanted to. I wanted to hear Outdoor mm-hmm. Minor. I wanted to hear Maroon. You know, I wanted to hear <laughs> like Practice makes, makes Perfect. You know, but they didn't play any of those. I mean, probably they only played. Uh, uh, yeah, probably Reuters as as an anchor, or at the at the end of the set. I don't. They probably play as a courtesy. Yeah, mm-hmm. but they haven't played any song, any famous song, or any established song at all. They all played new material. Well, I, I thought that really, bra- and I really loved it. You know, let's be frank. You know, when you go and see a band, such a storied band like Wire, you want to hear at least three or four of the classics. I mean, even if you are an experimental, you know, and challenging music lover, but like. Oh. Apparently they only did one sort of nostalgic show back in the nineties. They did a full, they did a set where they played the, the entirety of Pink Flag, okay. and then did a second set that was all the new stuff. But apart from that, they're fairly yeah. unwilling to get stuck in the past. But you know, I loved it all the way through. You know, even if you know those songs were really new to me, or they were really impactful, and you know, so yeah, I always admired them for that. You know, because you know, at least they are trying to find new sense in what they're doing, mm-hmm. a record after record. Maybe, as you said, in the nineties they lost it a little bit, and probably they're starting to lose it now. See, this is the thing. I don't want to. I don't want to seem dismissive. Yeah. But of the records, of the modern period of records other than Send, I really struggle to connect with the albums. I do think, if you listen through them, there are the odd bits and bobs that, yeah. that pop out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that none of the albums of the, the modern era are albums that I think I could listen to start to finish. I really don't. I, they, they, I could maybe make some kind of compilation of better moments, but I don't think even that would compete with the earlier things. Um, and that's, that's, that's frustrating, yeah, but I mean, 
they love what they do. I can understand that they want to keep doing it. Um, I'm just not sure that it's it's bringing much to the table now because the the, the style. I mean, it, they've almost been lapped. There are bands coming out now that rip off Wire that are playing on festivals with Wire, and the fans of this band don't even know who Wire are, who are, which is the band that inspired the, their group. You know, this kind of you have this retro uh, fetish yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thing, and so many of the the art groups that you see in Glasgow now are. Wire in the fall, wire in the fall, wire in the fall, and but people are so removed from it. I mean, people weren't even born when the original uh, artists were were playing. So, I, I think they probably thought they'd benefit from that, but I'm not. I'm not sure. They, I don't really know. Have. I mean, as you said, there are. I mean, the various Object Forty Seven, Red Bar Tree, you know, and Change becomes self titled ones. Yeah, that's like four. Like that's a good a good album, <laughs> a good wire album. If you put like the best tunes, you know, out of each um, out of each uh, record. I mean, I've seen them live twice, and I've said, uh, and I have to say that uh, I wasn't as impressed as I was in, in two thousand and three. I mean, the live show has changed. It's much more. Yeah, they have their moments. You know, they still have their great moments. You know, but mm-hmm. Gilbert is gone. Uh, they have this new guy playing guitar. He's, he's fine, you know, he's, he's doing his job. I mean, but, you know, there's something missing now. I mean, I don't... Uh, I mean, probably the last time I saw them, it was a bit unfortunate, you know, the setting, because they had uh, serious... Uh, I mean, they couldn't be as loud as they wanted to be because of restrictions, you know, in the area. It was in the center of town, you know, they had summer festival, you know. So it, was, it wasn't the best... Uh, it wasn't the best occasion. I mean, to, and also to, 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 like assess them now live you know yeah but but i wasn't particularly impressed you know by the whole probably they were they weren't happy because of the, of the fact that they couldn't be loud as they wanted to be uh, so um so by contrast then guys let's uh talk about pink flag oh yeah yes. go back to pink flag yeah so there's a lot of tunes in this so we won't go too much into depth except in the ones that i think really really uh, stand out mm-hmm. writers you mentioned Iconic to a lot of people, this hooky kind of punk anthem that's sort of mid-paced has this real stomp to it. Um, there's a lot of like fun, playful overdubs in this song. I don't know if you, you, you've noticed them, but loads of like racket and people talking yeah. and laughing and, mm-hmm. and stuff in the background. Um, and the tune itself just has a lot of attitude without feeling forced, without feeling scripted. Great introduction to the album, clearly. Oh yeah, um, yes, and it's, it's also it's, so. excuse me. It also establishes a, a standard. I mean, all the three albums, you know, the first three albums are opened by a track which is kind of similar, like mid tempo, you know, like kind of martial, yeah, yeah. you know, almost like moody. It's true, you know, it's always this, you know, introductions. There are always these introductions were really, you know, kind of on a similar vein. Each one with a different personality because you know you cannot really compare it to practice makes perfect but you know still you know they have this trademark intros intro songs to their albums you know they dispense with that yeah by coming flying out the blocks of the second one with field day for the sundays 
Which is 48 seconds Or oh, maybe less Maybe Is it 28 seconds? Yeah maybe. it's incredible yeah. It's incredibly short yeah. mm-hmm. 28 seconds Like pure stripped back Old school punk rock song Like yeah. that's That's one of the things In this album I think this album's Like a, 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 a Is a game of two halves If you will I think It works incredibly well As an album of Quite short Bits of music Consumed as a whole mm-hmm. um, As an experiential Attitude, absolutely. If you know what I mean, but at the same time, and one of the reasons I think it's an all-time classic is that from within that, you can pull out maybe four or five absolutely standout tunes that that can compete on any compilation that can go on a dance floor, which isn't something you got from a lot of other bands of that era. They either made a great fast-paced frenetic punk rock album like Minor Threat or something like that, or they made classic tunes like Blondie or the like Television or gang of four or whatever but very few bands managed to kind of package it all up where the big songs were cushioned by fast-paced punk rock songs mm-hmm. so it stayed as a punk album but yet had these really really big pull-out moments now field day for the sundays is one of those big punk rock uh, one of those mini punk rock things it's followed by three girl rumba open your eyes think of a which is one of their big tune moments yeah. and it's such a clever way that they alternate through this this is the tune Elastica wholesale ripped off the guitar line at the start mm-hmm. there's no denying it mm-hmm. um, yeah. one of the things that I think un- is not discussed enough is the fact that Justine Frischman also ripped off the vocal delivery and it, and the vocal delivery is as blatant to me as that guitar riff it's it's so stylized in, in, in the same ways But this tune is catchy as fuck. As I say, the the settlement for this ultimately paid the bills, so it's probably a mixed blessing, and I'm sure a lot of people have found out about why it is a result of that court case. I don't think, after having heard the evidence, too many people would quarrel with them mm-hmm. at, at feeling a little bit hard done by, because it is pretty blatant. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I have yeah. to say that I, I was glad that somebody was ripping off good music. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, and, and that I, is one I, of the best I can't of hate the... Elastica, because I think that that album is pretty enjoyable. I it's mean, a pretty good album, yeah, yeah, but uh, I, mean, uh, they, they, I mean... They didn't just rip off wire, they no, ripped off... No, the yeah, of course, yeah, the, the Stranglers, even. But, you yeah. know, also, they, they also ripped them off in I Am The Fly. Sorry, they also yep. ripped them off in a song called Lineup. Which is basically line up, line up, which I am the fly. I am the, yep. It's basically the yeah. same chorus, and uh, but anyway, you know, I I, yeah. I I couldn't hate them, you know, because I think the album is pretty enjoyable and it's one of the best relics of the Britpop era that you can still listen to. Mm. <laughs> the Elastic think, album, um, I think. It's, it's still, it's, if, if, I, if I hear them on the radio, I don't change dial and I don't touch the dial. <laughs> ah, yeah, they're fine. Yeah, no, um, they're alright, they're right. Track four, X Line Tamer, another absolute belter. That's great. 
Uh, it's a good riff, that. Really, oh yeah, and uh, one of the things that really stands out to me, it's a great riff, but also the call and response nature of the vocal. Oh, yeah. song. The, mm-hmm. the vocal yeah. interplay is great. They've got, they've got the back and forth, and then they meet up for the chorus and double it, and it's so anthemic. think they've made one of the things this album does but this song in particular is it makes really great use of the space in their songs whether it's a space between the strikes of a guitar riff whether it's a space between drum beats whether it's a space between segments because quite often they do that thing where a vocal line overlaps as the music drops out it's, it's a nice feature something that elastica also seemed to notice but yeah i absolutely adore that tune i think it's one of the really strong pull-out bits what i don't think is i don't think it's as good as the song that follows it lowdown Which for me was the tune that just cemented Wire as oh, yeah. fucking amazing. Yeah. When I first heard this song, I couldn't believe that this was a band I hadn't heard heard sooner. I, I mean, it, it pushes every Fugazi button in my body, clearly. Um, I love the pace of it. It just it sets them like so far ahead of so many of their peers in terms of this the maturity in the writing um, there's lovely little touches in it the way that the symbol is belled throughout mm-hmm. um, well, that's quite language hypnotic vo- yeah. it, it is a, a, the, the languid vocals in it the delivery the, the simple use of the chords the bits where he goes up in the vocal register just to add a bit of oomph And that weird sort of, it's not really a guitar solo in the bridge, it's just sort of struck chords. Yeah, it's so effective, like such a brilliant, brilliant song. Played this one to death, and I've probably played this song as often as I've played the rest of the album put together. I absolutely love yeah. that tune. And it was the first song that Wyatt ever wrote. Is that true? Yeah. That's true. Ah, right. yeah. the, and the lyrics are brilliant too, because uh, avoiding the E, because the E is where you play the blues, because there was this <laughs> thing, you know, against these long blues jams, you know, in the 70s, these bands playing forever, you know, so it, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. kind of, you know. Well, it's interesting that you mention that because uh, Bruce uh, Gilbert is like he is a blue. He was a blues guitar player. He played in blues bands and only ever played in an open tuning. So that was really, <laughs> that was really weird for um, for Newman because he wasn't a very good guitar player. So that that kind of informs that why their sound is the way it is as well. It's just trying to wrestle with making music in the only way they know how in a room together. It's quite probably, cool. probably I think he's referring to like the tired boogie blues that you know the seventies overblown rather than the blues itself. <laughs> the blues, you know, coming out of two such strong songs, they go into this little run of four very sort of card carrying punk tunes. You mm-hmm. can uh, start to move. Which 
which I mean right from the, the, the first note is, is just old school as fuck so it sounds quite dated but full of energy and it's a, it's a style of punk that I think's endured quite well heavy in the accents as well mm-hmm. um, Brazil Track 7, it's only 41 seconds, fun, quick, snotty, the gang chant that is great. Yeah. Uh, really old school again. Um, it's so obvious, a decent tune, I don't one of the best, but Pacey, Surgeon's Girl at number 9. Like, it's just this little batch of really fast, energetic punk music that cements its credentials. Because at the start of the album, you're a wee bit unsure, what is this? Is this punk rock or is this yeah. that? But they have this big chunk of them in there just to, to, to let you know where it's coming from initially and that the, the big songs are maybe more of an exception rather than the rule and those are followed then by the title track Pink Flag We're already at number 10 in the album, even though like time's flown by. It's a mid-paced tune, slightly more political and the lyrical theme. Um, the guitars, the tone of the guitars in the song is so dark as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it goes into this fully frantic ending with like, chaos and noise and... Almost, I mean, did this maybe end side one it of does. the LP? I'm it guessing, ends yeah. Side one, yeah. Because the the way it finishes is just such a perfect cue yeah. to turn a record over. It's such a decay, and I think it's a really brilliantly sequenced first half of, uh, given that that is the the midway point. Yeah, it's, it's oh, a great man. song. I think those live versions of it where they play for like eight nine minutes. That's on one of the reissues yeah. I noticed, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. And clearly it's a, a song that I guess they probably still play to this day uh, whenever they can be bothered. <laughs> it feels kind of proggy or metally. I think uh, Newman's on record as saying he actually liked stuff like Floyd in that as well, so you can kind of see a proggy, kind of Hawkwindy vibe to the guitars and like sounds. Hawkwindy, uh, you yeah. Know? I, can, uh, yeah, I can imagine that. I think sorry. I, sorry, I think that Colin Newman has remixed some Hawkwind stuff I think it, uh, I think he's done some yeah work on on some Oakwind tunes. <laughs> so that, that's cool. That that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Track eleven, the commercial. Instrumental. It's instrumental. This one. Yeah, right. instrumental, and written yeah. by written by Bruce as well. Written by Gilbert. So again, starting the second side, really cool idea. Just start to all instrumental track to get things going and follow it with straight line. Straight Line's one of the ones, Mark, that I think you can really hear the seeds of pop punk. Yes, yeah, quite trad. Yeah, it's quite trad punk, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I think it's got little elements, stiff little fingers and stuff like that in it as well, and, and, and some of the melodies. A really good way to get that second side going. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they go into another one, an, another pacey when 106 beats that. Some of the moments in that remind me a little bit of the stuff on Swami Records. It's a bit more rock and roll yes. than some of the, 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 the other punk stuff. It reminds me of the darkness of the misfits in places, although it's kinda of it's got some it's got some big big note choices and big vocal melodies which are not misfits in, in that way, but the summer league guitar bits and the and the sort of big sort of distorted bit at the end with the keyboard and all that. Reminds me of the Misfits mm-hmm. in places, which is weird. Um, Mr. Suit. Number 14, I think this is one of the most yobbish tracks on it. I think you can really hear the sort of influence that it had on the likes of Minor Threat mm-hmm. and that scene. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a ripper. Um, and even just the, the title has more of that overt punk sort of Mr. Suit kind of yeah. rebellious kind of yeah. face value quality. Um, the call and response is great in that. I love the call and yeah. response vocal on that. Yeah. Have, you, have, you heard, uh, have you heard the new Bomb Tarks version? No, no. Um, uh, yeah. On the Destroy Your Boy record, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's obviously way more rockier than this one, <laughs> but it's it's great. You know, it's it's a it's a brilliant cover version of this this track. Uh, then you go into Strange, uh, the one that REM covered that kind of introduced both you and I to them initially. It's like, you know, it, it's easy to take for granted because I'm so used to the song, but just how weird and brilliant an idea yeah. this song was. It's such an odd bit of writing mm-hmm. for a band that was basically playing kind of call and response punk stuff. Um, I mean, I think this songs like this really denote the genius of this band. Um, it's not conventional in the slightest it's so fucking fuzzy and nasty the tone wise and I, I just think it's one of the most inspired moments the, it's a genuinely catchy tune um, it's got some real swagger in it and for a band on their first album it's a band that hasn't been a band for, for much more than a year it's ballsy as hell really really like it um, do you know they were um, just a wee bit of trivia do you know that they were actually playing together four days a week for 12 hours a day uh, right. The, the Nirvana method. Yeah, and they'd written they'd written like seventeen songs in that in that in that period. It was mental. <laughs> yeah. Um, track sixteen, fragile. Yeah, 
notice the bad tuning in this one? The guitar's yeah. <laughs> the guitar's not tuned properly. Um, I, this one has a slightly more American feel. Totally, it sounds like Tom Petty. Tom Petty, I never heard like it does, I, I, I never associated. <laughs> but no, 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 it makes sense. I mean, yeah, yeah, obviously, but, you know, Tom Petty is the farthest thing from why. <laughs> but anyway, no, no, it's a great song. Yeah. And then Mannequin, track seventeen. Right, I've just, I, I know you guys, I don't expect you to agree with me on this, right? But of the, the first wave of punk, Mannequin for me is the best tune to come out of that. This is it one of the best pop, one of the best punk yeah, songs it's ever written. It's amazing. It's absolutely fucking amazing. Like, I absolutely love this. Um, the blossom in the intro that sort of hints at the ending. You know, it kind of it builds up with what ends up being the final segment of the song, but then snaps into this kind of hooky, bubbly verse. Then they bring in those oohs and ahs in the chorus, which are really reminiscent of the '60s stuff that you could tell they were quite into. The bridge really teases you by just making you wait. It's really just there to fucking build up a wee bit of anticipation back into chorus number three, which then goes into that la 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 kind of la bamba fucking. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's a, an absolute fucking masterpiece. Like, I, I I can't say enough good things about this tune. Like, it's incredible. Is that a total? Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Followed uh, by track eighteen, different to me. Uh, this was actually written by Annette Green, who's the the band's photographer. Hmm. Well, Alex, where? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Is she not involved in the music at all? She's just credited. She's just credited as lyrics on on Wikipedia, anyway. Um, oh, I thought she was involved in the song itself, um, but yep, another kind of nasty sort of more brutish punk mm-hmm. workout. It's it's not essential in the record, but it's just all contributes to the balance that I think makes it so successful. Love the wee vocal work. It's going to be terminal. That's so good. I, I went back and listened to it a couple of times actually just to hear that wee bit again. Again, <laughs> uh, track nineteen, champs. Brilliant opening riff, what a tone. Um, it's somewhere between strange and the punkier stuff. Uh, another one as well that has a really nice use of claps mm-hmm. for percussion yeah, in totally. it, um, which is just such a feel good thing when you hear it. Track 20, Feeling Called Love. Feeling 
terrific kind of fun cheeky sing-along tune another one that's a surprise that they went in that direction it just shows it's a band that's not too pole-faced yep. I think something really nice about that and track 21 12XU one of the seeds of the DC hardcore sound I think 12XU template for so much great US punk rock that followed it. Um, yeah, fucking wonderful. Well, the version I had actually also had a track in it which is called Options Are um, but I noticed that's not on the one that was most prevalent so I'm not going to go into yeah because they took it they, they, they took that song off because they didn't feel as though it fit well with the records liked it as well. Um, see that 1-2-X-U that, that was actually an exercise in self-censorship it was supposed to be one 2 fuck you, and then they just decided to make X-U and then just like wouldn't it be funny if we censored ourselves and then yeah <laughs> that's kind of what I assumed I thought that was a joke but yeah, yeah. Um, so as I said I think it's it's a it's a great punk album well consumed as a whole it's so short as well um, but also it's got those revolutionary kind of like inspired standalone moments that I think you can tell that those individual tracks, um, you know, X Line Tamer, Three Go Rumba, uh, Lowdown, they just set synapses firing in musicians who then took those little ideas, those kernels of ideas, and went away and turned them into entire careers. Um, from shoegaze to punk to indie to industrial music, this this set the tone for a lot of careers, as did the two albums that followed it. Um, I th- and I think as respected as it is, it's aged brilliantly, where some of its peers certainly didn't. Uh, yeah, and it's, a, it's just a colossus of inspiration, as much as anything. And that's why I think it should be in here. Absolutely. I mean, uh, also if you think, you know, one thing that it's really noticeable and, it's, and it was still impressive after punk, you know, was the brevity, the fact that they had this 28 so, uh, second song, 39 second song. I mean, the idea that you don't need extra, that, that less is more, basically, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, now it's almost a commonplace, but it wasn't in 77, like when you had like this sweets, you know, mm-hmm. like sweets. Sweets, musical sweets, a, a yeah, whole, yeah. whole side of an album, you know, and stuff like that, and everything had to be a single, had to be four minutes long, you know, and you know the idea that you could get the song done in thirty nine seconds was incredible. I, I think they're the only punk band who dared that. You dared to be punk was favoring short songs, but those those songs Wire on the Wire first album were particularly short. <laughs> like they, they went, you know, and, and that's how they influenced hardcore, for instance. And um, 
in fact, you know, the, the, the Washington and LAC both got crazy about about it. You know, Minutemen covered Mankin, if, if I'm correct, and Minor Threat famously covered uh, One to Hate You. And so, One to Fuck You. One to X You. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, X You. Anyway. So, basically, you know, like you mentioned television. You know, television were kind of similar to in their approach in the sense that they played guitar music but it was very streamlined you know there was there was no i mean it was we had the we had the solos you had everything but you know everything was every note had to make sense you know within the the, 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 yeah. the, the, the there was no show off you know everything had to be to to serve the song somehow and wire took that to an extreme you know because you know it's interesting that uh, i saw in an interview they were asked what they were listening to when they got together to do this and television was one of the bands yeah yeah you can hear that. that all all the members of the band were spinning the most at that time yet when you consider the brevity here compared to the 10 minute long version of marquee moon um, as much as I love it, it's so different. Yes, but it's the same concept. You know, it's like playing every note. Every every note needs to. There's not a wasted note. I mean, for me, I'm a big fan. There's not yeah. a wasted note on on Marky Moon as an album in general. You know, because the concept was like you do whatever it's needed to make the song work, and that's it. You know, you don't need uh, any more choruses. You don't need you know <laughs> solos. You don't need you know. You just do what you need to do to to deliver the message <laughs> musical message you know and that was a great lesson that was a lesson for generations of musicians you know um, especially after the 70s especially in 1977 when yeah maybe another band we forgot to mention that had a similar attitude were um, especially in terms of abandoning the decadence and the Romanticism of rock and roll was Talking Heads. Talking Heads was mm-hmm. Talking Heads debut album, nineteen seventy-seven. You know, you can find a similar attitude, but I think Wire were probably to, together with uh, maybe yeah, maybe just the Residents, Suicide. Maybe they were the, the ones who really were getting to the gist, <laughs> to the core mm-hmm. of yeah. all of all yeah. this, you know, and in their own specific way. And each, what's amazing is that each one of these bands, um, from the residents to 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 Perry Ubu, to Devo to Wire, they all sound different. They all have their personality, and but you can feel that they are linked by a, a commonality. Yeah, yeah, there's a commonality. Even if they're stylistically, they are very different. You know, television Wire, you know, very different. But you know, I think Wire were particularly successful because they kind of showed the new way. They showed the way how you could do a very complex musical discourse. Like you, you could. Uh, Establish a very complex and an interesting musical discourse uh, without taking 12, 12, 12 minutes of somebody's life. You know what I mean? Like you could do, you could say a lot of things in three, four minutes, or maybe thirty-nine seconds, and you, you you don't need those songs to last more than that. You know, they're they're just perfect. Yeah, you just need anything else. Mark, you were like new to the party here. Mm-hmm. So, what, what impression did it leave you with uh, specifically this album? This album, I, I like this album a lot. For me, London Calling by The Clash has a lot in common with it, purely because these are two bands that pushed that traditional 77 punk thing in completely different, in, in as many different directions uh, as punk can be pushed. Wire obviously went down a kind of more 
arty route, I guess. Yeah. Whereas the Clash were clearly a lot more involved in wanting to bring in elements of reggae and two tone and all that, you know. And I think mm-hmm. I think that works really well. So to me, they kind of sit quite well together, even though they're two years apart, and they both they're both innovative in the same kinds of ways. I think mm-hmm. they don't really stick around much in the whole blueprint for what there's there's an there's a kind of authenticity of punk spirit in these albums that I don't one of the reasons I always had an issue with the Sex Pistols and I know that a lot of people just love those records and I know there's a lot of good to the sheer disruption of that band but certainly when people bandy about different definitions of punk the definition that that feels truest to me personally is that willingness to just dispel the rules and experiment and do things that upset people and maybe show a little bit of like thoughtfulness and intelligence within that even if the intelligence is rebelliousness and I think as you say like The Clash Wire, uh, Wire um, Gang of Four uh, even though they're even closer to the art rock thing I think those bands did something wonderful with that attitude that I think some of the more hokey punk stuff doesn't feel as punk it's more conventionally punk by the kind of musical definition but in terms of ethos it doesn't feel as punk in, in, in its artistic spirit uh, and its sense of adventure and I think yeah, as you say, there's a common theme with some of the, the bands we're talking about is that Talking Heads, most people wouldn't say they're particularly punk, but their fucking spirit of adventure and willingness to kind of throw the rule book out or Devo, bands like that, it's all there. It's, it's much more interesting than adventurous. They did much more to broaden the artistic palette than, you know, the oi bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would never really... Uh, I Actually, I'm going to go on record and say I never. Con- I do not consider Sex Pistols to be a punk band at all. For me, they're just a rock and roll band. Um, I don't. I think well, a lot of the people that I know that are punks are not really hugely enamoured by them either. Their legacy is is the is the commodity of punk rock. Yeah, as opposed they've, to the actual. Sh- they've shat in their. Le- they spent a long time shitting on their yeah. legacy. It's a pretty good record, really objectively, but mm-hmm. it's be it's it's got a fucking so much baggage. Yeah. So much fucking baggage now. I don't necessarily. Uh, I mean think that punk shouldn't have anything to do with rock and roll. I think there could be good punk rock even if you if you're playing like basically rock and roll. But you know, what is certainly true is that for instance I was talking specifically about the sex pistols, is that for instance when I think about for instance the production of a record like Nevermind the Bollocks, well that's that's I can't really I mean I never I never loved that record the way I loved for instance the first Clash album or the Wire or even the or the Ramones first album because those albums like sound to me like punk should sound yeah. should sound you know, punk should sound like something you caught off the streets you know somehow mm-hmm. uh, something that you know like cinema verite you know like a new wave mm-hmm. c- French cinema you know something that or Italian neorealism you know something that mm-hmm. it's even if it, it's it's been thought about, you know. It's been it's been devised somehow, but still, you know, you have to have the sense of freshness of something that's been. Well, with the Pistols, you know, I mean, okay, it's a great album. It's, but it really sounds like uh, it really sounds like what it is, which is a big rock album recorded in a big rock studio, mm-hmm. which is not exactly even. For instance, yeah, you mentioned London Calling. London Calling by the Clash has got that streetwise, you know, like is. It's like a snapshot from from yeah from 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 London streets or even when they're playing reggae or or the styles you do you can really feel it's vibrant. Whether with the Pistols, I mean sometimes you feel like yeah there's something about that record that doesn't really 
yeah. makes me think about punk. It makes I think it's more it's specifically with the pistol because probably they did just the the singles, for instance, the singles before Nevermind the Bollocks, which were recorded in probably less uh, ambitious <laughs> conditions mm-hmm. or environment. Um, they kind of sound better than that, but I think they have, yeah, as you said, there's a lot of baggage with coming with that album. And um, I mean, we we live in a country where we have to see the singer advertising butter and suggesting people vote for right wing politicians. So there's a yeah, lot of yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a bit that's a bit hard. Um, so, Mark, does this uh, does this get your seal of approval? Then yes, yes, it does. Yes. And Ferro, I don't think I even need to ask if this gets your seal of approval. I think you uh, give it two thumbs up. I think it's it's got my seal of approval since 1989, more or less. So a fun bit of the show then. Uh, Ferro, we we briefed you on the concept of the Nexus. Oh, yes. This is your first time, so we'll we'll, we'll be gentle. But uh, time to do the Nexus. Uh, this was my choice, so I'm going to go first, as is the custom. All right. Wire, the band. Uh, worked with uh, a performer called Angela Conway. Um, Angela Conway is a dancer, a sort of interpretive dancer, but she went on to do loads of other stuff. She was a musician. She was a director. Um, she actually danced on the the shows that were recorded for Document and Eyewitness uh, that came out in 81 um, and she, she released some music as well and uh, under the title AC Marias but she did videos with a number of like quite high profile artists I think she, did she do it? she did an Erasure video I think uh, but she did uh, Smashing Pumpkins twice and she did a video for Nick Cave's Weeping Song um, oh. Nick Cave uh, released a double album, first side of it was called Abattoir Blues and yeah. the second side of it was called The Lyre of Orpheus Orpheus uh, was obviously a figure from Greek mythology who could charm any creature, even rocks <laughs> with his music but when his love uh, Eurydice uh, died, he tried to rescue her from Tartarus. And because he was such a moany, mopey bastard, after that, <laughs> uh, a, a group of people called the Maenads uh, were yeah. like, "Fuck's sake, get over it, mate!" They were followers of uh, Dionysus, and they just got sick of him grieving. He just, he just wouldn't, he wouldn't let it go and move on. Couldn't get him back on Tinder. Couldn't get any sense of him, so they killed him. Um, Dionysus was the son of Zeus, but Dionysus was actually the only Olympian who was also half human. Um, he was uh, the son of a Theban princess called Semele. Aye. Okay. <laughs> but we're his dad, Big Zeus, overthrew his father, Cronus. Uh, Cronus was one of the Titans, and then imprisoned Cronus in Tartarus. Cronus, actually, I didn't really. 
I mean, I, I like Greek mythology, but I hadn't realised that Cronus was supposedly governed over a golden age where there was no war, no theft, because nobody needed to. So, you know, Cronus gets a bit of a hard time for yeah. having eaten his kids. But, I mean... That's a minor... He did an all right, yeah. an all right job. So, I mean, yeah. you, <laughs> you got to try and... Is, is it okay? I mean... I would put, if, if Donald Trump ate his kids but was a competent president for the last four years and hopefully not as of tomorrow, then you would, there might be an okay trade. We're doing this in the yeah. election night, so we'll find out. But Cronus is also known as Saturn uh, because the Romans basically took all of Greek mythology and Romanized it. Sorry, Pharaoh, but your countrymen were thieves. And uh, they mixed it with the mixed it. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, so Zeus became Jupiter, Aries is Mars, blah, blah, blah. But uh, Saturn, aka Cronus, a was also the star of a fantastically grim painting um, that was part of a series called The Black Paintings, uh, titled Saturn Devouring His Children, I think it is, um, by Francisco Goya. Uh, And that was, uh, I mean, it's a really fucking powerful piece of art. I've seen it in person a few times, and it is heavy going. Um, But yeah, trying to eat his kids before they could overthrow him. Uh, Hopefully Donald Trump's eating Don Jr. right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So then uh, Museo del Prado in Madrid. And that is the Nexus from Wire. Wow, that's really nice. 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 That's really good. That's really good. I'll go. I'll go next. All right. Uh, So the lead singer, I guess, if you want to put it that way, uh, or the kind of the, the, one of the main songwriters on the band, uh, Wire, is Colin Newman. Colin Newman went on to do some solo stuff as we discussed earlier on, uh, and released his first solo album A to Z in 1980. The song alone from the album was released in the 19 was sorry was used in the 1991 film The Silence of the Lambs. Now, uh, The Silence of the Lambs is a book by Tom. I mean, is that the scene where he's like stitching the flesh suit together? Yes, that is indeed that very scene. Chris, how did you know that? Um, nice. <laughs> uh, so, The Silence of the Lambs is a book by uh, Thomas Harris, of which the the antagonist slash protagonist, depending on the book, is Hannibal Lecter. The first novel in that series is called Red Dragon and is named after William Blake's painting, series of paintings, The Great Red Dragon, in particular in the in the film and the book, Red Dragon, The red, the Great Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed in Sun, is the painting that Francis Dollarhide is obsessed with in the in the TV show Hannibal, in particular. He, Francis Dollarhide, gets the, the, the painting tattooed on his back and then goes to the Brooklyn Museum to eat a part of the painting, Inside the Brooklyn Museum, there's also a series of etchings by Francisco Goya, oh. which is where the Great Red Dragon series, which is where the first of the, the Great Red Dragon paintings, the one I would just mentioned, the Great Red Dragon and the Women Clothed in Sun, is displayed. So there you go. Some pretty strong work. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have. Uh, mine are so bad that <laughs> I, I, I had to do two. two. Yeah, so maybe with. Quantity, I can overcome this problem of quality that I have. <laughs> anyway, so Wire's Pink Flag was a big influence on the Minuteman, as we said before, mm-hmm. and the Minuteman were on SST, which is a label run by, famously run by, and infamously <laughs> run by Black Flag's Greg Ginn. In 1983, um, the great Kira Rustler replaced Chuck Tukowski in Black Flag. As a bass player, and in 1985, after Black Flag uh, disbanded, she formed a band with the Minutemen's uh, Mike Watt called DOS, 
dos means two in Spanish, and it's a Spanish word, obviously, and Goya happens to be a Spanish painter. <laughs> this is my first one. <laughs> Mark, have you been schooling him? Eh? Oh, I mean, I've never, made, I've never made a jump that is this person is Spanish and speaks Spanish. I've never made that quite that jump before. <laughs> I mean, you get you get a pass. You get a pass. Do I get a pass? Okay. Yeah, yeah, you want to listen they, to the second they one? They've pulled something similar in the past, so it's all yeah, good. Yeah, Dave has pulled some shitty shit. Uh, what's your second one? My second one. It's even worse. I mean, yeah, the original. Brilliant. The original <laughs> Colin Newman was a member, obviously, of Wire when they made when they made Pink Flag, and uh, the, in the mid '80s, Colin Newman settled in Brussels, Belgium, mm-hmm. and uh, Belgium happens to be happens to be the home country of James Hansor, which was a 19th century painter, was one of the precursors and uh, of expressionism. He painted the famous Entrée du Christ à Bruxelles, which is now in the Getty Museum in LA. And uh, Francisco Goya was one of the main influences on uh, on, exp- on, uh, on expressionism, as well as on Ensor. Uh, and so, basically, that's the connection between Francisco Goya. That's this a good is one. That's a good one. I'll let, I'll... That, 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 that was a bit higher. Yeah, yeah that, that, that was, was a bit high. Okay, like okay. Wow. Intellectual that one. I mean, there was a Belgium jump there, but you know, Belgium's a tiny place. We'll give you that. <laughs> Okay. Well, no, this not, was the hardest bad, thing I've ever done I mean, in I would, my life. I would, huh? Mark, I, I would hate to go back to our early, early Nexus collection and see what we got away with. Yes, frankly. So. I thank you. I brought you back to your. I brought you back. To, to your I mean, you just you, right. you may just have, early have, days. Have, um, yeah, held yeah. a mirror up to our sordid half-assed past, <laughs> phoning it in as we were in the old days. But it was only twenty-five minutes long back then. Whereas <laughs> now it's a fair bit more. Um, Ferro, you. that was that was fantastic. I'm so glad you were here to do so much of the. Uh, I loved it. Context I- of that band, man, because so much to. I mean, there's so much to talk about. The fact that we weren't able to go into any detail in their solo projects, and it's a pity. And hopefully, at some point, we're able to do something that ties in you know, solo projects or side projects or something because they've got some really good stuff. But hopefully there's a hell of a lot for people to get their teeth into. Yeah. That. Um, and that was no small part to you, man. Thank you very much. No problem. I think we didn't even touch uh, some of the, still, you know, some of the influences that uh, that that Pink Flag had on, on other areas, like industrial, for instance. You know, there's lots to say about the influence they had on people like, I don't know, Merzbau or, you know, the Club DVA, you know. And there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of things that we could say on this about this record still but you know i think yeah as you said there's a lot there's a lot to check out for people who would want to to get into wire and into their first album which is an absolute masterpiece mm-hmm. mark yes i think it might be your choice next week have you given this any thought uh since you've pulled punk out from under me, I'm going to pull electronica-ish stuff out from under Dave, and I'm going to do <laughs> Death Magic by Health. We're just going to keep ruining it for each other, then. This is a domino effect. That's the, that's quite nice. Aye, good shout. Good shout. Yep. It'll be an interesting week of listening. Ferro, before you go, I'm going to ask you to shout now. I'm going to swirl around in this tub of names, and we're going to pick out... You just tell me when. Stop. Okay. This is the Nexus for next week, and it is. Hang on, it's Kenny Benella again. That guy, we just can't get rid of him. Just can't get rid of him. Uh, and he has chosen Enrico Anoni. <laughs> Enrico, Enrico Anoni. Do you know that name, Ferro? Uh, it's, 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 yeah, he's a footballer. <laughs> Anoni of all the footballers. 
I don't know why he's picked him either. I don't uh, know. I mean, he's fine. Man, this uh, guy. But uh, we are going to go from health to Rico Anoni. Is he, is he fam- <laughs> he's famous in Scotland, Anoni? Yeah, former Celtic player, it, yeah. Ah, okay. That's why. Okay. Sorry. Okay, be, I don't uh, follow the football a, scene. A, a fun adventure from LA to Parkhead. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Thank you. It's great, man. Had a good time. Hope we can get you back sometime when we when we need a real expert, unlike us charlatans. Yes. No, <laughs> I'm very sorry about my my English is a bit like dusty. I mean, I don't I don't I don't speak English a lot. Jesus, honestly, man, that's and that's uh, probably crazy. I didn't make that was I know, probably I didn't make a lot of sense. But, but you know, I hopefully hopefully I mean somebody. I don't know. Let me know. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> so <laughs> um, fine. Yep. So check out cut. Uh, check out uh, Ferro Solo both amazing projects uh, from this guy who's a bit of a punk rock troubadour and uh, you look after yourself man I'll see you soon stay out of trouble you too take care bye thank you for having me bye bye